Turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through uh, verses 45, uh, entitled, <coughs> He Came as a Servant. He Came as a Servant. Now last week we looked in Mark 10, we were introduced to a, a man we call the young rich ruler. And this man approached Jesus and he had the intentions of asking Jesus the question pertaining to eternal life. One of man, mankind's most uh, sought after uh, answers is what is it, what, what, what do we do after this life or how may I obtain uh, eternal life? Now Jesus peered into this young man's heart and asked him a question that pressed him against the commandments. He asked him questions pertaining to the latter part of what we know as the Ten Commandments. The commandments that specifically dealt with loving your neighbor as yourself. And as Jesus pressed against these, this man with these disciples in his life, the young rich man realized that there was something there. He said, yes, I kept these commandments ever since I was a kid. Ever since I was a child, I was a kid. But see, what he did not realize is that Jesus did not mention that you shall have no other gods before me or that you shall not have any graven images. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain and remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And now Jesus left these out. And as Jesus began to dig a little bit in this man's life, the man realized that there was something standing in the way between him and him following the Lord Jesus Christ. He had many possessions, many things, and Jesus said to him, you want to follow me, you go and you sell what you have, and then you come and follow, and follow me. And so Jesus revealed the nature of the man's problem. It was that he had something in the place where God should be at, and this is called idolatry. Now his possessions were what his God was, and he could not literally go and sell everything and follow Jesus. We looked at this in the aspect of the disciples, and as the disciples, they dropped everything. We might, say, we might hear people say today, I dropped everything to go and follow Jesus. And then we look at their life and they have thousands and thousands of dollars in the savings and checking account. Now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but when we look at the lives of the disciples, they literally dropped everything and went and they followed the Lord Jesus Christ. There wasn't, there wasn't no cushion to fall back on. They literally gave it all. And I believe that Jesus was pressing this man to do the very thing. But see, Jesus knew that a man wasn't. Because something was standing in the way from him serving the Lord. Now how easy it is for us many times for things to get into the way of us following Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, there are things that interfere with us following the, the work of the Lord. And the mandate from the Lord Jesus Christ when on the very ground level says, Go to the uttermost parts of the world. To some degree we are gospel uh, presenters in some way. But sometimes there are things that stand in our way. When we're honest with ourselves, I'm sure even today we can begin to mark things in our life that are standing between us following Jesus the way that God would have us to follow Him. This week we're introduced to James and John. They ask a question to the Lord Jesus. 
really just shows how slow the disciples really were and how dull they may have been. Uh, they just didn't get everything as they should. And sometimes we don't either. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we, some things don't, don't come as, as quickly as they, as they should. And so that's why we are in this Christian walk. It would not be called a, a walk unless we were going towards a goal and trying to learn. It keeps coming up the fact in the text of humility and servitude. And this is the third time that we see this in Mark's Gospel. So, if we at least see it two times, we need to be paying attention. If we see it a third time, we better be paying attention and hear what the Word of the Lord says. We often think of ambition as a good thing. And it can be a good thing. Uh, but think of this. And it's mapped out. In this little section of Bits and Pieces, September 1989 uh, rendition of it, it goes like this. Ambition usually follows through with the following stages. Number one, to be like a dad is to be famous. To be a millionaire. To make enough money to just pay the bills. And in the end, to hang on long enough just so we can draw a pension. So ambition can be indeed a good thing with the right intentions. But for James and for John, it doesn't seem to be that way. The ambition for James and John was out of place and out of focus. And it was on their place when Jesus is to set up His kingdom. But the question remains, are they, are you ready to serve? Are you ready to uh, have the sacrifices laid onto you? Are you ready to serve and to deal with all the sacrifices that comes with serving the Lord Jesus Christ today? So let me pray for us as we go into uh, the text itself. Beginning with this aspect, Jesus, He came as a servant. So let's pray. Father, I ask You that You will do Your good work here today. That You will help me, Father, to make it through this sermon, Father, and make my, my points precise. And ask you that the Holy Spirit will indeed use those to speak to hearts and minds today. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, first we're going to look at a third, uh, a third prediction. From the mouth of Jesus Himself. And remember we talked about things reoccurring in the text. So a third, say a third time's a charm. And we should be paying attention to what this says about Jesus. And what Jesus is saying to His disciples. So starting with verse 32 it says... And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed, they were afraid. And taking the twelve again, He began to tell them what was about to happen. And see, we are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus says. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the high priest and to the scribes. And they will condemn Him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him. And spit on him. And flog him. And kill him. And after three days he will rise again. So remember they had just came off the tale of Jesus teaching about a rich man entering into the kingdom of, of heaven. And saying with, with God all things are possible. It is wherever you put the possessions that counts. Does God supersede them? Yes. And the disciples were amazed at the teachings of Jesus. So in verse 32, we have again introduced by Mark this language of traveling. And I like Mark's aspect of the gospel here because it includes uh, the idea that we are traveling on the road with the Son of God. 
And so he uses the language over and over again. They were on the road. They were on their way, and Jesus was literally on his way to his death. And we see that Jesus predicts for a third time, and that he predicts his own death. Now there have been attempts where scholars would say, okay, well because Jesus is predicting his own death, and it happened this way, that it was after the event. That this was written back into it. But think about it. If the text shows Jesus looking into the very hearts of mankind and knowing their thoughts, knowing what they're going to say, knowing that they're in sin, knowing and forgiving sin, if Jesus shows that very point, how could it be so far divorced that God, through Jesus, cannot predict His own death and do it a third time? So I don't think that after the event even leaves any credence here at all. It is Jesus authentically and realistically predicting His death. It is not after the fact. It is true to the gospel itself and for a good reason. It isn't just out of place. Jesus literally predicted His own death and in detail He, he done that as well. He predicted his death in detail. They would pull his beard. They would spit on him. They would mock him. And this is written so eloquently, not only in Mark, but in Matthew and in Luke as well. These gospel presentations go forward. It shouldn't be that hard to believe. It shouldn't be that hard to see that Jesus is authentically, he is realistically predicting his own death. He's had that foreknowledge to look in the lives of men, how could it be so far away from him looking into his own life as well? Now Jesus and the disciples, they were only a few feet from Jerusalem. They were some 3,300 feet away from Jerusalem. And oftentimes when Jerusalem is depicted in the text, Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem. It is synonymous with his death. Many times they would, Jesus would, uh, he would link Jerusalem with his death. And so it would be the case here. They are on their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus didn't stay the course. He didn't go off the course anyway. He didn't go off the course one whatsoever. He was marching toward Calvary and for the cross. And when we look at this in retrospect, we can say to ourselves, what a love the Savior had. That in Romans 5.8, that it demonstrated that while me and while you were sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus marched towards Jerusalem, towards His death. And He wasn't swayed any way. By His own mouth, He predicted His own death. And so we might see also this sentiment here. He says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and over to the scribes. They will condemn Him to death. They will deliver Him over to the Gentiles and to Herod and then to Pilate. And they will mock Him. They will spit on Him. They will beat Him. They will flog Him as Isaiah 53 so shows us. And after three days, He will rise. He isn't talking about somebody else. He's talking about himself. Because Jesus adds the detail at the end of verse 34 here that shows the extreme hatred that the scribes 
and that the high priest had for Jesus. Jesus came and interpreted the law. He just literally cut the legs right out from under the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priest and said, you've been teaching the, the law wrong this whole time. This is how it should be taught. And so we would read this account in Matthew 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus comes in. This is how. You've heard it said this way. This is how it should be. And so Jesus undercuts them and they hated him for it. And Jesus taught as, as so much authority. Uh, he superseded the scribes. It was as if he was speaking from God himself. Because he was indeed God in flesh. The religious leaders hated him for it. They hated Jesus for teaching the law the way it's supposed to have been taught. So we might see in Mark chapter 14, we haven't got there yet, but he predicted this very thing. Mark 14 and in verse 65 it shows that. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him and say prophesy. And the guards, they received him with blows. As they were receiving Jesus, then people were hitting on him and said prophesy. You prophesied your death, give us a prophecy might be something that we say. So we would see, even in Jesus' predictions, the way that He peered into the human heart, if we could say that we had a map, it would say to, about Jesus, this is God. An interesting map is on display in the British Museum in London. It's in an old mariner's chart written uh, somewhere uh, around 1525. And in these areas are places that are uncharted. They haven't been discovered yet. They haven't, they haven't even been uh, researched. They haven't even been and, and explored yet. And so as the, the cartographer had began to draw out the map on those places that, that no man had ever seen, he began to write in subtitles above each area. In one area he wrote, he said, Here be giants. Over here is giants. And over here is fiery scorpions. And here be dragons down here, he wrote. Uh, he had no idea what was there. But eventually, the, man, the map came to the possession of one Sir John Franklin, which was a British explorer sometime in the, in the realm of the 1800s. And as he got the map, he scratched out all of those uh, inscriptions that said giants and scorpions. He scratched all of them out, and over the very top of this map, he just inscribed, Here is God. The world, God. So I think of what we look in this text today, we can see that very thing. The scriptures depict Jesus and says, here is God. Not just the sheer fact that Jesus predicted his own death, but everything else that surrounded the life of Jesus depicts and says, here is God. A lot of people have a hard time with that because Jesus didn't just blatantly say, here I am God, worship me. But see, we miss the mission we need to look at the mission of Jesus primarily first. If we were to draw a map of all the life of Jesus and what the Old Testament teaches about the Messiah, I think we would say, here is God. Number two, can you become a suffering servant? Can you become a suffering servant? I don't think to the degree in which Jesus suffered, but we can become a servant nonetheless. So let's look at the verses and see what Jesus was, was really teaching the disciples here, who on all outward appearances seem to be a little dull on the uptake. And 
James said, and James and John, the son of Zebedee, uh, came up to him and said to Jesus, they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So if you hear the tone in that, all right? We want you to do whatever you, we ask of you to do. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And so verse 37 goes on to say, And they said unto him, Grant us to sit one on your right and then one on your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And in verse 39, they said, they said to him, They said, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and then one on my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And in 41 ends up, it says, and when the ten heard it, the rest of the ten heard it, they began to be indignant or mad at James and John. We already saw this word, and we'll comment on that when we get across the text. They were mad at the rest of the disciples. So the question had come in the previous, in another gospel by Salome, which was their mother. Now, in the, in the, uh, the previous gospel account, she literally asked the question. She is the one that asked the question about James and John to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, knowing the intent of the question, and know who asked, literally asked the question initially, he doesn't even address, address the mother, but addresses the disciples. He almost pushes her away to a degree and addresses who literally asked the question to begin with. And so he talks to James and John and not the mother. It was really uh, none of her business to begin with. They asked the questions. These were the disciples. It is addressed to them. And they asked this question. And the disciples looked at Jesus and said, in this way, if we can hear the tone, I think it would be this type of bratty, little snot-nosed type of question. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, the question does seem to be a little bit uh, presumptuous. As to Jesus, we're going to give them everything that they ever wanted. And so what do they ask is that one would sit on the right, one would sit on the left. But the ever-patient Lord, He waits for the question to come forth. And this, I think, is much reflected in the text itself and how many times we approach the Lord and say, Lord, I want it this way right now, the way I want it. Without any questions, give me what I want right now, Lord. I'm waiting on you. But I think we really, really need to examine, much like the disciples here, probably needed to examine their priorities. They needed to examine the way that they asked the question to Jesus. Is much like many times we need to examine our request before the Lord as well. Are we in the right motives? Are we asking to, to consume uh, something upon our own lusts and desires? Are we asking uh, legitimate uh, requests of our Lord Jesus Christ that would build relationship between us and God and between others around us as well? And there are many times I know myself that have asked requests looking back and I would say that I have, like James, like, 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 um, would say that we ask them amiss. And we ask them to consume on our own desires, which really isn't the will of God to uh, begin with. 
And many times I have to examine myself. Am I asking something that in a, in a lustful way? Uh, an example of this would be something like, uh, Lord, uh, uh, give me a new car. You know, is that legitimate for the kingdom work of God? Does the Lord want to bless us with a new car? Maybe. Uh, but I think we need to examine our petitions before the Lord many times. And I think that's the point. Uh, the disciples, they ask a, a simple question. It seems to be simple. One wants to sit on the right and one wants to sit on the left in the kingdom. But first, they did not understand what the kingdom consisted of. They were expecting a Messiah to come and rule. We talked about it many times in Mark. They were expecting a a Christ to come and conquer right then and right now. When Christ had in mind the flag planted and not yet the throne. He planted the flag and said this is the kingdom of Christ. For the sake of Christ, I'm calling my church unto me. I am saving those to take the gospel to the nations. My flag has been planted. And then one day, then one day, down the road, sometime in the future, then the, then the crown, then the throne will be realized. The disciples did not see that. They wanted a Messiah then. And so that's one of the reoccurring things we might see in, in Mark. But I will say this, after the resurrection, things for the disciples began to become more clearer. They saw the resurrected Lord. Now things started connecting a little bit more. But now they seem to be a little bit dull. Think about when Jesus walked on the water. He walked through the boat and the disciples were scared. And they had a piece of bread in the boat that reminded them of the miracle and yet they still doubted the Lord. Aren't we just like that sometimes? Just a little dull. Uh, thank the Lord that we have the Word of the Lord and His Holy Spirit now uh, that will help us through this life. We can get over those areas where we're dull at, where we're, not, where we're slow to learn. Before a Jewish individual thought, for a person to sit on the right meant they had prominence in the kingdom. Then on the other hand would have been the left. This would have been the person on the other side who was second in command. You had the man on the right who was first. We had the man on the left who would have been second. And then we have, of course, the king or monarch who was sovereign overall. And so this is how they would have saw Jesus Christ. So they totally was misunderstanding what the kingdom of God would have been here on earth and it would have been through Jesus Christ as people like you, me and all those who name the name of Christ among us go and make disciples of the nation making a kingdom of Christ and for Christ and for His glory and for the return of the King they misunderstood this and they did not understand to grant this request meant some suffering for them so they didn't understand it. He says it himself. He says, you don't understand what you ask. And there are places in the Old Testament where a cup is, is synonymous with wrath. And baptism would have been the wrath poured out and, and persecution. In Psalm 75 and verse 8, it says, For in the hand of, of the Lord there is a cup that is foaming wine, which, which literally symbol, symbolizes wrath. Well mixed. And he pours it out. And all to the wicked of the earth. And they shall drain it down to the very dregs. So not to go into the full context of, of, saw, of the psalm here. We can see where the cup is synonymous. Or the cup does seem to represent some wrath. So to drink of the cup from Jesus isn't necessarily a, a good thing. Like you're having a glass of, of wine or something. It didn't necessarily mean something of, of, of a refreshment. It meant something of wrath for them. Both the cup and the baptism is symbolic of the suffering and the death 
of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, knowing this, he said, well, you aren't, you aren't able to take of the cup in its fullness like I am. But he makes a prediction. He makes a prediction to them. And he says that they will partake of this, this cup. The disciples said that they were able to. They didn't, they didn't understand it. They were ignorant of their own weakness. They say, we can take of the cup, Jesus. We can partake of the suffering and the persecution. People often say, of course, that this is ran back in because Jesus sees their future too. He sees the future of the disciples as well, that they will indeed partake of this cup and they will die, at least in some degree, a martyr. They will die a persecuted people. So we see in history, both James and John did partake of this cup. They suffered greatly for the name of Christ. They suffered, they partook of this cup in some degree. Peter died a martyr. John died of old age at the hand of the Emperor Domitian as he was, as he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Then he comes back, but he dies of old age. But he identifies with the churches of Asia Minor and he says, I am a brother just and I identify with the persecutions that you have been persecuted in. And there is your cup. There is the cup, the persecution. John identifies with being part of the persecuted church. And Jesus was saying, you don't understand what you're talking about. You don't understand your request because first, you must suffer to be great. And it is not a time or place where one to find out whose authority is whose. It is not a time or place, Jesus would say in verse, in verse 40. He says to them, it is not the time or the place. It is not for me to give out to whom. Remember, Jesus has Calvary in His sight. Compassion on the sidelines. He's compassionately healed people as He's walking towards Calvary. The disciples were, were really more or less putting the buggy before the horse. They wanted to have the easy way instead of going through some of the persecutions. And I don't know if any of us in here think of suffering as a good thing, but sometimes persecution, sometimes suffering in its life can be a good thing because it builds, it builds up our lives. Now, I don't think that many of us would like suffering when we're going through it. But when we look back on it, we can say, I can see that the Lord used this suffering in my life to make me a stronger Christian. To make me a stronger follower. I don't want to be a snotty-nosed little follower of Jesus Christ. I want to be a, a Christian that has some foundation. And I know what it means when a brother or sister is sitting there that is suffering in their life. I can identify with them. And I can say, brother, I know what you're going through. I've been there. And I've come out of that. And I can say, thank the Lord for bringing me through that. The disciples here were putting the buggy before the horse. They wanted the easy part without the persecution. And I think there's much, much to learn from being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ that they were just not connecting with that as of yet. So Mark 10 and 41, and the rest of the 10 heard it, and they were just angry with James, and they were angry with James and John. And primarily, they, the disciples just did not understand. They did not understand what Jesus was really teaching them. Sometimes we often misunderstand as well. We must understand the will of the Lord for our lives. Someone would say, Lord, what is your will for my life? 
You know, and my best advice for anyone asking that is read the scriptures. And as we soak up the scriptures, pray that the Lord will reveal. And the Lord does this in many ways. He reveals through the scripture, His Holy Spirit. He reveals what the Lord, what He wants for you by other people, affirming and confirming what he will, what the direction that He will have you go in your life. So there's always a way of understanding today, specifically for us, the will of the Lord for our lives and where He wants us to serve at. But the disciples, they were just a little slow of, of, of obtaining this. They were misunderstanding the words of Jesus. And it's easy for us sometimes to fall into that category. But I would say that we need to be fervently, fervently speaking, and seeking the Lord and seeking how we can be a servant and just to clear through those misunderstandings. Jesus, His teachings was often misunderstood. His own disciples were not immune to this. We are not immune to this. And it makes me think of a woman that went into a, to a chicken, kind of like your KFC place, and she was wanting to order some, some takeout. You know, she wanted to order, a, say, a box of chicken. And she, she goes up, she makes her order, and then all of a sudden there is a, a calamity that has gone through the place. <clears throat> you know, people kind of whispering to one another, and there's kind of a little bit of a commotion going on, and, and there was a buzz and a shock going around the, uh, the, the line of customers. And so we hear the clerk in the front who's taking the order, he says, he says what? You, you, want, you want to know how much... Chicken, we need to prepare to serve 300 people? I mean, he's, he's like off the charts. Here. Imagine going in and order enough chicken for 300 people. I mean, they, they began to shuffle. He began, you know, telling people behind the, back there cooking, you know, we need to order for 300 people. And they were going all crazy and, 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 and sporadic in the kitchen. And the woman, she just says, no, 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 no. And she's just like shaking her hand and wave, you know, waving her hands. And she says, no, no, no. I need enough chicken for three hungry people. So they went all off for just a sheer misunderstanding, a misrepresentation. We can understand the teachings of Jesus Christ clearer today because we have the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God that helps us and illumines the written Word of God to us today. We have an advantage over the disciples. We can clearly know the Word of the Lord and His will for us today. We can clearly know that in our lives. Maybe if the disciples would have listened a little closer and paid more attention to Jesus, they would have been a little quicker to understand. And I think that can apply to us as well. Jesus knew that these disciples, they were not being humbled. Sometimes we are not humbled either. I mean, imagine just asking that question. Lord, I want to be ruled with you in the kingdom of heaven. I want to rule with you. You know, without their being, they didn't understand this aspect that, that they will suffer for my name's sake. Is what Jesus would say. There is something that Jesus taught over and over again. We aren't even through with Mark. And this, this, this idea of a servant will come up and come up and come up over again. They didn't understand this. And all after the, re the resurrection when things began to really fully make more sense to them. So you must be a servant. And this i already come up one time before at least. With the child, Jesus taught this thing. Be humble like a child. And three, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give His life for a ransom for many. And I'm going to close on this point by reading uh, these last few Scriptures and briefly, briefly talking through them. Jesus called them to Him. He called the disciples. He says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Giving them an example. But it shall not be so among you. Whosoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whosoever would be first among you must be a slave for all. For even the Son of Man come not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Now, of course, we can't give a ransom of our life for many, but we can take the aspect of serving. And if serving was good enough for the Lord Jesus Christ, then I think that we can adopt that as our lifestyle as well. Uh, America, uh, I love this country. But I wish that we would come back to this aspect of serving our fellow man and serving our community. And I would love it more if we did it under the banner and the strong name of Jesus. We seem to live in a land that is to each his own. And how I wish we would come out of that mentality. And I think the way that this, this object and teaching is going to come out to the rest of the world is through our churches. As the churches reaches out and serves our community the best way they can and best resources that they can, we come to serve. And I think that we will overcome some of these obstacles in life. We can learn this aspect. This whole discourse really comes down to one important, one really important verse and that invades the lives of the disciples, any disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is this, if you want to be great, that you must be a servant. This goes as far as even in the business world. A person that is a great leader is a great servant. Uh, they put in the time to be a great leader. And that is, uh, I think, one of the things that Jesus is teaching. You want to be great, be humble. And all one really has to do is to look out really how short this life is. And we can stand back and look, you know what, this, this life is too short really too short to, to try to consume everything on our own lust and desires. Do some good for the sake of Christ. Do some good. Serve one another. Serve your fellow man. And I, I come across this idea. Let me go back. Does one want to be great in this world or great in the kingdom of God? Do you want to be great in this world or be great in the kingdom of God? Doing work for the King of Kings and for the Lord of Lords. There is where our greatness will lie. Doing work for the Kingdom of Christ. And sometimes that might mean suffering. Sometimes that might mean we need to go out of our way sometimes for some, some people. Sometimes it might make us uncomfortable to do some things. It might put us out of our comfort zone. But somehow I think that if we press through, will we become the greater disciple for it. We will become a greater disciple for that. N.T. Wright, in his book, After You Believe, and I'm going to close on this. N.T. Wright, in his book, After You Believe, wrote of a story of a man named Maximilian Kolbe, and he was a Polish Roman Catholic priest. And he was 
thrown in literally in the Auschwitz concentration camp in World War II, Nazi Germany, with his own people. And he witnessed people going and, and dying day after day after day. And one man in particular, he tried to escape. And as he tried to escape, he was captured. And he was, he, I mean, they were going to literally, they were going to execute this man. And he began to cry and to weep because he had, a, he had children and a wife that he needed to get back to. And so that was his reason of escaping. And Colby stepped in and offered himself in the man's place. He took the man's place literally in death. The man was able to go back, not literally go home as of yet, but he was able to escape death that time. And so Colby went to his death quite calmly. And the death was supposed to be by starvation. But after two weeks, the, uh, Colby did not starve. They just gave him a lethal injection and he, and he passed on. Now I don't know, and I hope that we don't come, ever come to that place, but we have to lay our life down and substitute our life for another. But I think that this Colby gives us an idea of what it means to literally serve your fellow man. Now are you willing to lay down your life for that person? We might not be able to drink the cup that Jesus drank and literally lie, lay our lives down for other people, but I do think that Kobe gives us a good indication of what a servant is. You're willing to do what it takes to serve your fellow man. And sometimes your fellow man might not even be a believer in Jesus Christ, but we serve them anyways. We serve them anyways. And this is what I think the disciples are missing. This is what I think that the church at large sometimes can be missing is that we miss what it means to really serve. We don't just serve people because they believe in Jesus. We serve people in a community to show them Jesus and show them Jesus uh, through, through us. Let us pray.